Welcome to Breaking Banks, the number one global fintech radio show and podcast. I'm Brett King. And I'm Jason Henricks. Every week since 2013, we explore the personalities, startups, innovators, and industry players driving disruption in financial services. From incumbents to unicorns, and from cutting-edge technology to the people using it to help create a more innovative, inclusive, and healthy financial future. I'm J.P. Nichols, and this is Breaking Banks. Welcome back to Breaking Banks. Uh, This week, I had the opportunity to sit down with uh, Sinkterra's Chief Executive Officer and co-founder, Peter Hazelhurst. You may remember Peter because he uh, has been on the show previously, but he had stints uh, leading um, Uber Money, uh, working on uh, Google Wallet, uh, Google Pay, um, was it Yodley and more. Um, But it would be very interesting to get a bit of perspective on what's happened with fintech in um, 2022 and now in 2023, how uh, Peter thinks that banking as a service is going to stack out and maybe we get into crypto and stuff like that. So Peter Hazelhurst, I understand uh, you are down under right now. Welcome back to Breaking Banks. Hey, thanks, Brad. It's great to be back and great to chat with you. Yeah, I'm here in Sydney. Uh, It's not exactly summery. I have to say, I'm down here with the kids and they're expecting beaches and stuff. And it's been more like theater, but amazingly, my 12 year old kids sat through the whole of Amadeus, uh, which was spectacularly great. So if you get to come to Australia, come to the Sydney Opera House, Michael Sheen is ridiculously awesome. You're the second person that's told me that uh, a friend of mine in, in Oz just said exactly the same thing. If you can get to see it in the Sydney Opera House. So, um, yeah, yeah. Worth worth making making a trip down there. How was twenty twenty two for you guys? It was a a foundational year. Yeah, for us it was like our first year of going to market. So it was quite interesting. You may remember we we uh, launched effectively at Money twenty twenty back in twenty twenty one, and um, and that was really an exciting time to sort of announce, hey, we're open for business. Come and play with our APIs. Learn learn what we can do. And we weren't really sure what was going to happen. We kind of thought, you know, the market, there's a lot of interesting startups getting boosted around. Would they come and try out our platform? Fortunately for us, Q1 was actually quite quite good. We had 20 or 30 fintechs come, give it a go, try stuff out. Um, we made it really easy on them. There were no minimums. There was no, you know, contractual commitments. It wasn't like a hard sell. It was like, would you like to try banking as a service? Here we are. It's available. Let's give it a try. Q2 was actually quite a, a good chance for us uh, we actually started raising prices and you know testing the price elasticity of the marketplace and signed our first uh, big cannabis fintech called paybotic which was really interesting I don't know if we've talked about cannabis but that's a really interesting challenging space um, yeah I mean um, we are starting to get some regulatory clarity on that now but um, at the same time it's still, because of the question around the legal status from a banking perspective, it's tricky, right? It's super tricky. You have to have a sponsor bank that um, is in a cannabis-friendly state and have a state charter. So we work with a bank called Regent Bank in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Right. Uh, sidebar, watch the TV show Tulsa Kings. Fantastic. Uh, set in the cannabis industry in Tulsa of all places with Sylvester Stallone. Ooh, check it out. Um, but yeah, so you have to have a cannabis-friendly bank and there's a bunch of work you have to do to monitor transactions, make sure, you know, what people are buying is le- legal in the state that they're buying it and so forth. And the way our platform works is 
we effectively give business banking to the dispensaries. Think of it like a checking account for the, the dispensary. Right. We've had to partner with folks like Imperial to do cash collections because imagine there's a lot of cash. Um, and then we effectively built a white label weed app. So think of it like your Starbucks app, but when you top it up, you're actually, as a consumer, getting a checking account at Regent Bank in Oklahoma. So all the purchases are done by actually just a P2P transfer inside the bank. And that helps uh, keep all the money inside the state, which uh, avoids any of the concerns around federal money movement and so forth. Right. It'd be pretty interesting having a, um, you know, a fintech bank based on weed where you get your rewards or in, you know, weed. Oh, it's, it's, a, it, it's a thing, I promise you. Um, and uh, in, in some ways, just like coffee, the marginal cost is actually pretty low. And yeah. so the reward points in weed actually works out as a pretty interesting incentive. Um, but anyway, so Q2 was really exciting for us. We also signed our biggest fintech, which is Float. Think of them as the corporate card for Canada. And uh, and they launched three months later, which was really exciting. Now, Float's going fantastically well. They're actually doing some really interesting business of cross-border banking for Canadian companies. So think of your Canadian company um, using Amazon, Google Cloud, all those sorts of services like we would do anywhere, and then giving them US bank accounts so that when they uh, charge their bills, they charge it in the US versus Canada. And that has a, an interesting price advantage um, being based in the US versus Canada. So we've helped uh, companies save a lot of money on their operating costs uh, while building a really flourishing new fintech, which is really great. And then Q2 seemed like the world was going to come to an end. Um, as you remember, sort of May, June, everything was fairly scary for the market. Uh, but actually, it was okay for us. And we were lucky uh, as we went into Q3 to actually start to grow really significantly. So we signed 16, 17 deals in Q3, which was really tremendous. Excellent. Well, you know, and, I think, um, I, you know, I think people look at 2022, uh, you know, from a fintech perspective, and they talk about the bottom falling out of the market. But in reality, while 2021 was a monster year for fintech funding, you know, um, 210 billion, one in five VC deals around the world. The the reality is that 2022 was still the second biggest year of fintech funding that we've seen in the last decade. So you can't exactly call that a collapse, right? Yeah, I agree. And I think what we've observed is there's been a little bit of a concentration of quality. So the folks getting their Bs and Cs and even Series D investments are actually thriving and doing really, really well. We're starting to see a little bit of weeding out of the, uh, what I'll call our competitors, so all of the other banking as a service folks. Um, and Q4 for us was the first time we had customers coming to us from Synapse and Unit and Bond. Um, no one, oh, actually one from Treasury Prime as well. So we're starting to see um, a little bit more rationalization of who's going to be the long-term players in banking as a service, which I think is healthy. I think there's probably too many competitors in the market and makes it quite difficult for a fintech to figure out what one to use. Um, but overall, uh, you know, what I say is super easy to raise a $50 million pre-seed round with no revenue. No, I don't think that's easy anymore. Um, but I do think that there are really great ideas and really great founders, uh, particularly folks coming out of the big companies like Facebook and others, or Meta, I should say, um, that are basically saying, okay, I'm not working at my big company anymore. I'm going to go do something interesting and innovative. And they are easy to get funded as well because great founders are always in high demand. 
Yeah. Now, um, uh, you we talked about the regulatory position on cannabis, which is uh, an interesting one. But overall, the U.S. has lagged the rest of the world in uh, licensing around fintech charters. In fact, of the G20, I think um, they're only one of two jurisdictions that doesn't have a fintech charter. Obviously, the U.K., um, you know, move forward with the Challenger Bank Charter, you know, in the 2014 timeframe, you know, EU followed. You've got Singapore, Hong Kong, Australia all have uh, uh, fintech charters. Uh, even um, New Zealand has a, Malaysia has a fintech charter, but the US doesn't. Um, so from a regulatory perspective, how does it make it more difficult both for banking as a service platforms and for fintechs to uh, get that initial traction in the US market? I'm not sure that I perceive it as any more or less difficult. I think the majority of the early funding stage fintechs, requirements are different though. Like if you want to start a bank uh, you know, in the US, your capital adequacy requirements are going to be like 50 million US compared with say a million in, uh, in the UK, right? Oh, 100% yes. So I, I, I mean more from the fintech's point of view, needing to be a bank or actually having a banking charter is not a high priority. You can find partners like us where we have 10 banks that will work and we will do the regular, help them do the regulatory oversight of the fintechs. So you can get this, the advantage of low funding cost to start and then grow into whatever you need to do. Uh, so the, the pure play benefit of being a bank, so to speak, um, isn't as high in the US with the one part of that, which would be, okay, you want to get into lending and being your own bank, you can do lending on your own balance sheet. But um, at the moment, I think being a small or an early stage startup doing lending on your own balance sheet is actually a really scary thing. And you'd be better off having a bank as your backstop, providing an oversight and, and so forth and guidance on credit risk management and so forth. Yeah, I mean, I think um, in the early stages, I don't think it's an issue, obviously, you know, um, moving when we started, we started on that basis. Of course, there wasn't the infrastructure, um, you know, the the BAS infrastructure that, that we have now. Um, yeah. But um, the, the, the complexity from a regulatory perspective, you know, Obviously, back when we were starting in 2010 and 2011, it was a very different world. But um, even from the perspective of the tech around onboarding customers and so forth, um, which is your key thing you want to really streamline in the early days to get that traction, um, you know, that, that tech has come a long way and the banking as a service stuff that's matured um, you know, that stuff. I mean, you know, back in 2011, when we were looking, you know, there wasn't identity verification plugins, yeah. you know, there, there wasn't that stuff, you know, there was no so cool there was no Jumio. Yeah. Right. Do all yourselves. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, it was, it's interesting because, um, you know, it wasn't the core system providers weren't seeing demand for those requests until the fintechs came along. So there is a very strong argument that fintechs really matured the market and created, you know, demand for these these types of services. Um, and yeah, now we sure. have an entire industry globally on uh, banking as service. Um, you know, you wrote some predictions for 2023, but, um, you know, you also have a bit of a global, um, you know, uh, perspective. So how would you compare banking as a service, say, in the US versus what we see in Europe, 
you know, we have uh, Rouser, you know, previously known as Rouse Bank there. Obviously, um, you know, you have um, players like Ant, um, you know, mm-hmm. in, in that business in, in China, um, and you have other players uh, entering the market. How would you compare the banking as a service uh, market globally? So I think, I mean, the nice thing about Europe and Asia and Australia and others uh, is that there's actual specific regulations that say what you can and can't do. The, the challenge we have in the US is the regulations still basically prescribe what a bank can do and not right. what this in, intermediary sort of infrastructure can do. And it's a little bit uh, ambiguous as to how to really enforce KYC rules, AML rules. Clearly, the bank has to do it from their perspective. But when you have a third party involved, there aren't rules like PSD2 and open banking and others that exist in other parts of the world to govern what you should do. And I think, I hope that 23 and 24 will be a year or two where some of those rules will get defined because I think it'll make it much simpler for everyone. When it's gray. Yeah, but the, the challenge you've got in the US is you've got these lobbying groups that drive policy and these lobbying groups from the core incumbents in the industry don't want us to get definition around fintechs because it gives them credibility. They want them to play by all the same rules, including things like the CRA, right? Yeah, for sure. Which is... And what is how does the CRA apply if you only exist online? Right. Or if you're actually right. well, based in Malta right? or somewhere, that's right? that's the point. You know? <laughs> um, uh, you know, so I think that's a challenge. Um, you know, that was always, that was a challenge for moving back in the day, but I think it's a challenge for, for players on, on uh, you know, Sinterra's platform as well, getting that that regulatory and that you will get um, regulatory clarity at a at a local level to some extent, you know, from um, you know the local regulator. But but there's definitely not that global position. Where you know, I mean, the OCC has tended to lead this, but from the regulator's perspective, um, you know, what chatter do you hear from the regulators in the US that that is important for your business going forward? I think there's a ton of focus on really understanding identity and making sure that the person who is opening a digital account, whether it's powered by us or by the community bank and they, somebody walks into a branch, is consistent and uh, sensible. And I think that's especially interesting as you start to get the future of global work. So one of the things that changed because of um, COVID was you no longer actually had to be in the hometown in order to do an activity. Right. And what what particularly for knowledge workers. So think of like a graphic designer or an engineer. You don't have to live in the US if you don't want to. The, the reality is there's a lot of work, like projects that are in the US, but living in the US isn't a requirement. The challenge is if, in fact, you live in Mexico or Brazil, how do you get paid? And there are folks that will sit in the middle as a broker of that money flow, but all want to take 20, 30% commission in order to move the money outside the US. And what's coming into play now is this concept of global identity verification. So imagine there's a uh, an engineer based in Mexico City who wants to work at Meta. That person, she can actually now apply online and we can do KYC of that person and truly, truly prove who they are to the satisfaction of a US government regulatory authority and allow them to get a bank account in the US. And what that so does why... is it means she can so get paid now. Yeah, yeah. No, but I'm I'm, the obvious question that comes from that, because I've seen this developing over the last few years, and I've heard people like Sependu Mahanti out of MAS talking about this, is that once you can do 
KYC like that competently anywhere in the world, which you know, digital digital identity is a, a borderless construct, right? Um, and mm. you know, as soon as we get good at that from a competency perspective, and we're going to need to because digital identity is an underlying requirement for twenty first century smart economies. Once you can do digital identity and KYC a customer accurately offshore, then you you theoretically could have fintech licensing in Singapore, right? Where, because this is what MAS has talked about doing in the future, where they will allow you to KYC any customer from anywhere in the world. And as long as you can satisfy their requirements from a KYC perspective, you can now onboard that customer to a Singaporean fintech bank. So now you could have a Singapore fintech charter be a competitor against a US banking charter from a regulatory perspective. That could get pretty interesting. I think that could be really interesting. I suspect it might be a challenge of um, localization. So how do you actually go and pay your taxes in the US? So as, as you and I both know, working in the US subjects you to um, the IRS and right. the tax authority. And, and they are pretty particular about making sure they get paid, which is completely reasonable because we all drive on the streets and so forth. Um, so I think there's going to be still a oversight at a, at a governmental level of, who can do what sort of banking. But I also think what's really interesting is it then becomes, what do you think of the networks? So if you're a customer in Singapore and you live in the US and you print the debit card, where does the money flow through? So which country right. are you doing your cross-border transaction through? Is it a US transaction? Is it a Singapore transaction? And that'll have a different impact on foreign exchange. It'll have a different impact on in, um, you know, FX experiences and so on. So I think there's a lot of that stuff that's unresolved. What for me would be the most valuable thing if we could figure out is identity portability. So if I do if I do KYC at Bank X, why do I have to do KYC again at Bank Y? Right. Uh, in the well, US, you have yeah. to do it bank to bank, and never mind globally. Yeah, no, I mean Dave Birch talks about a lot a lot about this. Is that if you know you are going to create digital identity ecosystems that are commercially led rather than sort of a global standard that that's implemented by government, then banks are the trusted parties to, to authorize. And all, all you should be doing is going to banks and saying, you know, can you verify this is Peter Hazelhurst? You know, this is Brett King. I actually, I actually think there's another player or there are two, Google and Apple. I think the yeah, only folks yeah, that obviously. actually really can do federated global identity is Google and Apple. And with Apple starting to put driver's licenses in Google, in Apple Pay or Apple Wallet, whatever you want to call it, and Google doing the same. And as soon as you start to get a couple of countries involved, uh, you know, Dreamland, I wouldn't be carrying my two passports around. I have a British and an Aussie one. Yeah. Um, I, I could just show my iPhone. Um, that, because they've got an amazing infrastructure of talking to governments globally, they actually have a possibility of saying, hey, I've, I, I can prove Peter is Peter from this perspective country in australia you should approve them as well yeah and i think that's kind of interesting and once you do that you unlock a whole potential types of new borderless existence which i think would be really fantastic and reflects the fact that we've got this thing called the internet i mean let's be real this has right, been going right. for a little while now and the only thing that's <laughs> not portable is is like where you live um yeah. and we've proved you can work remotely so why can't you live remotely and and that's what i think is uh a next phase it's actually interesting because a lot of the things we've talked about today, um, you know, the 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 emergence of these fintech um, neo banks and these different models, 
the cannabis business, uh, identity frameworks on a global basis, money movement globally, digital nomads. All of these are examples of breaking the traditional conventions of the way we think about organization of money, the way we think about people movement, the way we think about corporations setting up, the way we think about banking being set up. I mean, if you look at China, you know, um, more people would do their banking day to day with and or Tencent than they would with a traditional bank, you know, and the, same, the same is true of the world. I mean, the mobile wallet became the primary bank account of the world back in 2017. Right. And so just even, just even the, you know, even the argument today is that a bank is not a bank anymore, that, you know, the primary form of a bank account is a, a software based or cloud based wallet. Um, and so we are, we are coming into a very different world. And so in that respect, um, you know, the U.S. is a pretty tough regulatory environment to do banking as a service in because of, you know, the, the lagging regulation around that. Um, you know, have you thought about moving Sinkterra offshore at all or, you know, what are your plans there? No, no, no. I think we're, we're here to stay in the U.S., um, we are likely to expand uh, up north into Canada in the near term, which I think there's a, a lot of opportunity because the blurriness between Canadian and American experience is pretty high. And I think that will be really exciting for us. Um, there's a lot of interest in LATAM. I, I know you know Brazil, Mexico, Costa Rica, Colombia are really high growth markets. Um, but us moving headquarters, not that we even have a headquarters, I don't even have an office. Um, us re-jurisdicting outside the US is low priority. Um, primarily because fintechs that are banked by us, if they had to go to their retail banks and say, hey, we're using Sinterra, it's based in Malta. Are you cool with that? I suspect the community banks would say, actually, I don't really like the idea of the tech stack. not." But what about being in Puerto nearby. Rico? Puerto Rico is more probable, but it also has really interesting uh, in incremental financial controls that are different than the rest of the US. Which is nice. I mean, they have this borderless co uh, checking account concept, but it's confusing uh, from a Fed and a regulatory perspective. Now, on the um, on the clients that you've been signing up, um, you know, one of the things that we we've noted a couple of times on breaking banks is we're now seeing a lot more spe specialization in fintech banks emerging. So we've got nerve for musicians and you talked about the cannabis business. Are you seeing more of that specialization now is that the fintech banks that are emerging in the US aren't trying to be the chimes and the currents and the varos. They're not trying to be the big players. They're trying to be more specialized. Very much so. So we're, we're doing uh, uh, a women's fertility near bank, which I think is going to be really interesting. Um, and help solve, you know, funding and buy now, pay later requirements for them. We're working with Players Health, which is fantastic. They're helping kids play sports. And their, their focus is, if you can't pay for sport, how can you get into sport? And so it's very narrow. It's specifically focused on that category of problem. And as we continue to get more and more customers, the, the narrower the focus, the more likely they are to be successful, I think. The, the, per, the, the general play chimes of the world effectively end up competing with the B of A's and chases of the world. They don't actually really own a particular customer segment or, or concept as much. Yeah, fair enough. Hey, listen, last, uh, last week's show on Breaking Banks was um, a big 2023 all-star you know, outlook 
a forecasting panel. We had some big names, um, the biggest names in fintech on there, obviously. But um, you also just did a, an article on uh, your predictions for 2023. So how about we wind up with with that? Um, you know, what are your big predictions for fintech this year? I think this is going to be the breakout year for simplifying embedded finance. So making it really easy for someone who doesn't do anything to do with banking or payments or fintech to absorb technology stacks like ours and add a banking layer to their experience. And the more we do that, the more we actually help. I mean, you look at Shopify and others, their primary revenue stream is banking and payments. It's not their core business anymore. And if we can generalize that, that's going to create an explosion of new activity. Uh, so um, that 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 requires a new paradigm, though, in many respects, which is valuing the experience, right? Which right. I think has to happen anyway. You know, you coming out of the payments world, I mean, this is an interesting conversation to have. Uh, you know, we could have a whole show on this, actually, and maybe we get you back to talk about this. But, you know, one of the other elements of the success of mobile wallets and digital identity is that the um, interchange model is going to suffer, right? You know, I mean, if you look at all of the fastest growing payment networks around the world now, they're not based on, you know, interchange fee. They're, they're based on more experience experience fees or they they use credit access from the payments network to to pay for pay for stuff. So like Ant and, and Tencent in China, they don't really have interchange fees. They have some merchant fees, but, um, you know, so... Where do you see it going from an embedded finance perspective? How do you see the difference in terms of payments rails emerging? Look, I think uh, Ant and others are basically a, mo- a model cloned from American Express. So with American Express, you're the issuer, you're the network, and you're the merchant relationship. So a three-party transaction where all parties are controlled by one player. And Ant is the same, right? So you've got your Ant wallet on your phone, which may get funded out of something You've got the ant experience at the merchant and the ant merchant is connected to the ant network. And when you can control all aspects of the money flow, you never need to let the money touch the ground. And so then if you offer incremental banking services like a savings account or ultimately investments or a lending product, then you become a full service provider that gives you that deep relationship end to end. And I think that's where embedded finance will get its leverage. It's back to the old school days of why did GMAC and Ford board credit exists because you had cars on the lot that weren't shipping because the customers came in and they couldn't right. get the funding. Right. And so they closed loop the funding cycle. And I think that's going to generalize across lots of industries. Yeah. I mean, credit is the key to unlock the embedded finance stuff. And and whatever you say about buy now, pay later, experientially, it's just part of that evolution of contextualization of credit that's inevitable, I think. And and just finally, before yes. we, we finish up, um, what do you think is going to happen with crypto this year? I think it's going to be a pretty tough year for crypto, unfortunately. Um, I I still struggle with trying to figure out where blockchain and other technology stacks actually incrementally create value for end users. I think there's a lot of technological benefits, but we still haven't found that use case that the consumer says, oh, it's just like Apple Pay or it's just like Venmo or it's, it's that sort of ubiquitous experience. And until it does, I don't think crypto is going to really be able to escape the challenges of always being attacked by bad actors. I mean, I do think there's a case for more centralization or more regulatory purview, at least. But, um, you know, you, you could make the argument even on what we're talking about portability of identity. Blockchain's a great 
mechanism to, you know, create that. Um, but, you know, separating blockchain from crypto is often difficult um, in that 100%. respect. But, so where, uh, Peter, where do people go to find out more about what you're doing and about what Sinterra is doing? Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, so obviously just follow us on the web at sinterra.com or on LinkedIn or Twitter. And uh, if you're a founder or a tech company and you want to look in to get some banking into your experience, we're happy to work with you. And we're really excited about the potential for 23. And on Twitter, you're P. Hazelhurst. And of course, people can find you on LinkedIn and, and elsewhere, right? Yeah, I'm P. Hazelhurst pretty much everywhere. So as my kids say, Faisalhurst. But anyway. Faisalhurst. <laughs> Fidgetal. Fidgetal Faisalhurst. Yes. All right, cool. Exactly. Uh, all right. Well, hey, um, look, enjoy the time you've got left down in Oz before you head back to the Bay Area. But it's great to have yeah, you thanks, back mate. on the show. And, um, you know, good luck for 2023, brother. Brilliant. Thanks very much. That was Peter Hazelhurst, uh, co-founder and CEO of Sinkterra. It was good to chat about uh, uh, many different things today, but uh, I'm sure we'll get a regular update from him in a few months as to how things are going. Um, that's that's it. We're going to take a quick break now. We'll be back with more Breaking Banks in a moment. Hello, listeners. I'm Brett King, the host of Breaking Banks. Together, myself and Dr. Richard Petty, have recently released our latest best-selling book, The Rise of Techno-Socialism. We look at how inequality, artificial intelligence, and climate change are going to shape our world moving forward. During the pandemic, the wealth of the world's billionaires ballooned. The richest 1% added $1.6 trillion to their wealth, meaning that they own more wealth than the bottom 90% of Americans today. Unemployment skyrocketed during the pandemic, but artificial intelligence could disrupt up to 80% of the jobs today. These new industries we are creating will face labor shortages because we aren't training our students with the right skills. By 2050, we'll need to produce 70% more food to feed the 9 billion inhabitants of the planet, but we lost 40% of our farmland to erosion and pollution in the last 50 years. By 2050, 570 global cities face inundation from sea rise. Miami, Guangzhou, New York, Calcutta and Shanghai are just the top five cities. If you want to know more about the solutions to these problems, check out The Rise of Techno-Socialism, our latest best-selling book. You can get it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or go to riseoftechnosocialism.com to find out more. Welcome to the future. Welcome back to the futurists. I'm Brett King, your host, along with Rob Tersek, um, and our guest this week is Dave Birch. Rob, take us through this week's news from the future on our deep dive. Cool. This week, I want to talk about NFTs, non-fungible tokens. Uh, the general perception is that the, uh, the field of cryptocurrency is in a state of chaos, and that's evidenced by the collapse of big exchanges like FTX and other big players in the cryptocurrency field. Um, that said, there's been a lively innovation happening in non-fungible tokens. Non-fungible tokens have different properties from other cryptocurrencies. Um, one of the interesting things about them is that they make it possible for people to exchange things that aren't money. Uh, they create lively markets for other kinds of items, including things that pertain to identity. The topic I thought would be interesting for today is to talk about brand identity and NFT. Uh, most of us think about uh, non-fungible tokens for things like artwork, uh, and they work quite well for that. There were some spectacular sales 
about $20 billion of uh, transactions in 2021. And by all accounts, it's going to be more than that this year, despite the meltdown in cryptocurrency. Uh, so the field of NFTs is growing and lively. But what's interesting to me is that the major brands are moving into this space. And you'd think given all the chaos in cryptocurrency, they'd be quite cautious. Um, companies like uh, fashion brands, uh, like Dolce & Gabbana, Gucci, Lacoste, Louis Vuitton, Prada, and sports brands like Nike, it's generated more than $200, billion, $200 million in the space already, uh, and Adidas have been at the very forefront. But other kinds of brands have also been very active with NFTs, issuing their own NFTs. That includes beverage brands like Budweiser, uh, Robert Mondavi Wine, the Scottish Distillers, uh, major sports brands in the United States, uh, the, the uh, NBA, the NFL, the Football League, the Major League Baseball, and of course, the European Soccer Leagues as well. Uh, media brands like Walt Disney, Warner Brothers, Paramount, BBC Studios have also issued NFTs, and many game companies have experimented with NFTs inside of games to create currencies. Um, a lot of this would be chalked up to a kind of innovation exercise or experimentation. They're, they're fairly small scale in terms of the number of coins that are being offered. Um, in some cases, they're not attempting to monetize. In some cases, they're doing it for charity purposes uh, because this is mostly a marketing exercise. So it's not, they're not, their objective isn't to make a profit on the NFT sales, but they do understand one thing that's really important. Fans, super fans, want to identify with the brands that they love and they want to purchase that identity in some cases and they want to share that with people. And so what we're starting to see is kind of like an opt-in community emerge here. This has been a very lively field and it continues to grow. Um, so I thought we'd kick off with that as a notion and that helps us talk a little bit more about the future of identity and some of the ways it's evolving. Because of course, when we think about identity, it's not limited to people identity. There's identity for things, there's identity for products, identity for locations and so forth. Now, uh, David, we were talking a little bit about cryptocurrency, and um, let's let's get into that subject. Uh, you know, the, the 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 problems of identity, the lack of identity on the web, led to the rise of the big Web 2.0 companies. Um, you know, our social media networks, in a way, they manage our identities for us. We opt in, we share a ton of information with them, and they make a lively business out of monetizing those identities um, by targeting ads at us. And that's worked pretty well until recently, where Apple's shaken it up a bit. Now we're going to a cookie-less web browsing experience that will shake that up even more. Uh, and that creates an opportunity for some form of decentralization. That's really at the core of the Web3 movement. It's not quite the same as cryptocurrency, but it does rely on the blockchain. Dave, if you would share with us some perspectives about decentralized identity. I think that the underlying technologies here are, are really pretty. You know, this idea that you'll have some sort of wallet, this wallet will contain multiple identities. Those identities can be the owner of, of both, you know, fungible tokens like cryptocurrency, like, you know, dollars, uh, as well as non-fungible tokens. I, I think that's really pretty interesting. And and actually, in many ways, I think this is much more interesting than than, than just the straight kind of cryptocurrency story itself. You know, NFTs in particular, you know, pe people tend to think about those as stupid pictures of chimpanzees with sunglasses mm -hmm. on that people paid three hundred thousand dollars for, and now they're worth nine cents, and so they kind of write off the whole kind of NFT thing. But actually, NFTs, this idea that you can have digital objects which have the same fundamental characteristic as physical objects in that they're uncopyable we don't yet have a star trek replicator and even if we did you could think of nfts as being a sort of gold pressed latinum that won't go through the replicator 
this is a genuinely interesting development in the history of online. So up until relatively recently, we thought that everything that was digital could be copied, mm-hmm. um, whether it's an artwork or a song or a computer program or anything else. It's just data. It can be just copied. The really interesting thing about tokens is they can't be copied. And that's that's profound. I mean, that's really interesting. So now you have digital objects that people can actually own because they're because they're, and and people don't own those at the moment. So so I mean, people talk about oh, look at Fortnite. You know, is this the future where you you know you go in Fortnite and you work hard and you buy a hat in Fortnite and everybody wants this hat and so on. But the point is, you don't you don't own the hat. Fortnite does. Uh, it, it's it's a so this idea that you can have these digital objects that can actually belong to somebody, I think that really is very interesting. And I think there are certain, I'll give you a very simple example. You read all that stuff in the papers last week about Taylor Swift. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I read it. So I, I couldn't pick Taylor Swift out, out of a police lineup. I've, as far as I know, I've never heard any of her music. I wouldn't know. But, you know, she's famous. And, and there was this thing about her tickets. Like, And I'm thinking... Why are all these people involved? Tickets, concert tickets are the perfect example of an NFT. They are absolutely unique. Mm-hmm. Like a ticket for row B, seat 27, at this night at Madison Square Garden, that is a perfect example of something that should be an NFT. Yeah, There shouldn't be any issue of people counterfeiting barcodes or turning up with copies of tickets or no, because there's or only scalping. one. Or scalping. Yeah, yeah. Or scalping. There's, well, we have different views you about could, scalping. You could scalp no, it. It creates a secondary market that could be quite used, could quite good, What's where the artists can continue market? to get paid, why, you know. Why, why is it considered, like, if I buy a share in Apple, because I think it's going to go up, that's okay. But if I buy a ticket for a Taylor Swift concert, because I think it's going to go up, that's bad. I don't understand. Why is that? I don't get that. Yeah, but, so, but the NFTs enable a secondary market where royalties of course. go back and, to the and, artists. And so in, in a, a way, same world, you know, Taylor Swift would have just minted all of her concert tickets yeah. as NFTs and just sold them on eBay. What the hell's Ticketmaster got to do with it? And the interesting thing is Ticketmaster now has partnered with uh, with the company that that did NBA uh, Top Shop uh, to create NFT tickets. And there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, evidence to support what you're saying. There's some trouble right now with scanning those, you know, with, at the um, at a at a concert venue. But, you know, you know, obviously, my. I Why do you from, need to scan? Like, I can't you just a, walk through an electronic gate? You know, so uh, no, transactions, you, transactions per second on the blockchain are quite slow, and right. so uh, when you have fifty thousand people trying to come into a concert venue in the space of a couple of hours, uh, if it takes 12 right. seconds to verify each one, that, that creates a bad yeah, yeah, yeah. So what they're doing at festivals right. now is that they're creating a separate line for the NFT holders because they are creating this kind of like lifetime membership concept yeah. no, that, for NFT but holders. That's, but Robert, that, that's because, you know, the, these NFT experiments are going on on Ethereum and these other blockchains. Yeah. The, the thing is, while it makes sense to have them on some form of distributed ledger technology, it's completely not obvious to me why that should be a blockchain. So a, a, a blockchain is a very, very specific right. problem. So a yeah. very, very specific. Particularly solution. a public blockchain. It doesn't necessarily have to be a public public blockchain. Yeah, yeah. So, so the so the point is, you know, uh, that I, I I I agree. Like, if you're going to do it using Bitcoin or Ethereum or something, yeah, it's all too slow and blah blah blah. But that, I don't think that means anything about the future. I think but, the the point the futurist part of it, which you which you highlighted at the beginning, is 
there's something different about NFTs because we never used to have that. And now we do. And so how do people respond to that? Uh, I mean, one I of the things that's different is now, now you can have ownership without possession. You don't actually have to possess a physical item and you can still have ownership of it. And you can transfer that ownership. This is really the, the powerful aspect, I think, of NFT. And, and, they and create markets a, because it makes it possible a, to transfer ownership. Yeah. And in, in financial terms, I think it means that you can have liquid markets in things that didn't used to be liquid. That's right. So, you know, Brett and I can trade a square inch of the Mona Lisa or, you know, tickets to a Dodgers game or, I mean, whatever. We can trade things in continuous liquid markets where identity can be established i mean these markets will be reputation markets not identity markets where we can't cheat each other where we can't forge where there's a kind of transparency to what's going on which in in many ways is a really important factor in the future financial infrastructure that we don't have now this kind of transparency so i i i think you're on the money there robert i think nfts are really interesting can i ask you dave sort of taking this in a slightly different direction but you know we're now um, you know, let, let's think about the problems that identity needs to solve. So one of the problems we have, you know, emerging on Twitter at the moment, for example, is, you know, under the, the banner of, you know, quote unquote, free speech, is that you have bad actors who are pretending to be other people, um, you know, and other brands and things like that. But, you know, how do you know like in in this world of disinformation that has really created a ton of chaos? How do we attribute, you know, these things not to Russian bots and, you know, and and trolls and so forth? How do we get to a point where when someone says something that is extremely damaging to society that can create violence against a group of people, for example, how do we hold them responsible given the changes we're going to need in identity? Or is that even possible? I mean, I think there's a there's a political problem there, which is out, outside my technological envelope. But uh, what I would observe is there there are really two distinct problems here, which have been sort of jumbled up a little bit. So when um, Elon Musk was 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 taking over Twitter, one of his major complaints was that there's too many bots, and that's true. There's an issue. So there is a technical issue, which is how do I know whether you're a bot or not? That's actually quite easy to solve. They, I don't know why they don't do this. Like when I when I go and create my Twitter account, you could just bounce me to my bank and for, get me to log into the bank. The bank knows whether I'm a real person or not. The bank can send back a cryptographic token that tells Twitter, yes, this is one of our account holders with no personally identifiable information in it. It's none of Twitter's business who I am. Just an authentication. It's, yeah. It's just this, like, am I a person or am I a bot? That's like one issue, which actually is quite easy to solve. I think What's that's why he's trying issue? to get people to subscribe for the verified identity because then I say this is why they this is why they jumped up this right? verification thing. So so problem A is am I a person, right? Problem B is am I this Dave Birch? And Twitter, I think personally, is it's none of their business. Neither of those problems are Twitter. Twitter is should be operating the social network properly. They should be policing and they should be working out how followers work and who I am. Why is that any of Twitter's business? I don't understand that. Isn't it, isn't it um, like Twitter's responsibility to ensure that if you're going to represent yourself as someone or put some ideas forward, that there needs to be accountability for that? Yeah, but why does that have to come from Twitter? 
I mean, for example, if you're trying, if you're trying to find, so out, this is know, digital identity you, infrastructure, essentially. King, or are you the Brett King? Well, how does right. Twitter do that? Right? Who knows that you're the Brett King? Well, actually, LinkedIn does. So, but right? but how? I mean, th this is this is sort of really when we come to this question of decentralized identity versus centralized, because if you are going to have an identity system that enables you to verify who you are when you're transacting, when you're asking for medical advice, when you're sending your kids to school, when you're driving on the road, you know, et cetera, um, you know, this needs to be really core infrastructure for an economy but, 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 the, but the just because the identity is decentralized so so i mean if you want me to be a horrible technical nerd about this when when you say decentralized identity what i hear is control over private keys so are the private keys held in some place or are they decentralized and held by me that's quite that's a completely separate problem from who attaches credentials to the associated public keys so, so if you say like, "Am I a doctor?" for example, what does that what does that actually mean? What that means is, I need to present a credential which contains the fact that I'm a doctor, and it has to be signed by someone that you'll trust. Like, if I say, "Oh, I'm a doctor," you'd be like, "Well, whatever." You know, I need to see a thing that says you're a doctor that's signed by the American Medical Association or the hospital or whatever. Now. You will have the public key of the hospital. You can immediately check: is that is that really from the hospital, or is that mean like those things are? I wouldn't say trivial, but the point is we understand exactly how to resolve all that stuff. So the location of the private key and the signing of things that are attached to the public keys are, are distinct issues. You can have a decentralized identity infrastructure with a with a with a reputation system that works perfectly on top of it because when you challenge that certificate that I, I present the thing that says i'm a doctor under the hood you're constructing a cryptographic challenge against the public key that can only be answered by the person who has the corresponding private key so what i'm in practice doing when i put my thumb on my iphone or look at it or whatever is i'm demonstrating control of the corresponding private key now but but uh, but this uh, this can't realistically occur without at least a um, a standard for identity that is published totally. or must be totally. adhered to. Right? It's happening right now, Brett. It's happening, but in a in a fragmented, haphazard fashion. So, for instance, today, if I log into Google, um, it's going to ask me for two-factor identity, and I have to go to my phone and log into the Google app just to prove right. that it's me. But it works, right? I mean, it's only within Google's ecosystem that it will work. But they're making a big play for this, right? Because they're trying to extend Google identity across the web and they'd like to continue to control it, just like Facebook. And presumably Apple's going to follow down this path as well. This is what the big I, web two companies are seeking to do to preserve I think if you want to be, If you want to be more speculative about that, Brett, I think one thing to think about might be who is it that underwrites those? So because we we, you know, I'm a boring old person. I'm very reactionary. I assume that eventually the banks are going to get our act together and sort this out. So when I go to log into Twitter and prove that I'm a person, it'll be my bank that does it. But actually, there are other candidates. Yeah. Right? Like Walmart yeah. knows that I'm a person. You know, the Disney Channel might know that I'm over 18. So the Dave, telco you... might know that I'm currently in the UK. The telcos like, have a huge opportunity people. here that they're not currently doing much with, frankly. They know much more about us than they're willing to let on. Yeah, Dave, I let me so. offer an idea here that you might find interesting because this is a field that's uh, quite futuristic. 
in the in the field of decentralized autonomous organizations, where many of the participants are are anonymous and they they we don't even know where they are and they don't want that information to be uh, known by the other members of the DAO, but yet people are working collaboratively towards a goal and they can actually run a business this way. And so it's a novel kind of an organization. Uh, the way you build identity there, where you don't know who the people are is with reputation tokens. And so you earn yeah, reputation cool. tokens based on positive contributions to the community. Um, and if the community feels that your contributions are not positive, you know, like the kind of crazy stuff we see on Twitter and Reddit, then your reputation will be voted down by the community. So over time, mm -hmm. people are gonna be quite cautious about the contributions they make if they wanna have a better reputation. Um, what I've learned is that if you're a member of multiple DAOs, and many people are, um, as you build up reputation tokens or reputation uh, inside of each of these DAOs, that is a perfect fingerprint. Uh, that is a perfectly unique identity uh, across multiple DAOs. You've, or you've got a reputation token, uh, you know, uh, multiple reputations across multiple DAOs. It can't be replicated by anybody else because you have to earn it over time and you have to earn it with the community's consent. And what we don't need there is the traditional identifiers. You know, my, my, my weight, my height, my face, my fingerprint, um, my address, uh, my birth date, the stuff that government identity relies upon. And the stuff that, as Brett pointed out earlier, is you know totally. easily stolen on the web, and it's not very easy to protect. Yeah. So it doesn't seem to be the right approach. This idea is quite different, and I think it's a really fascinating and fun idea because it's identity that is placeless and actually anonymous. You don't really need to know who the you don't need to know if it's a man or a woman, what country they're from, and so forth. It's just is this person a reliable contributor to this community? Over time, that reputation score builds up. Uh, so that becomes the basis for the distribution of proceeds inside of a DAO. Based on how much reputation you have, that's how much you're gonna get paid when there's a distribution from uh, of revenue or for, of profit to the partners in the DAO. Yeah. It's a fascinating and, new concept. And we, yeah. And I think, I think you're, you're, this is a really interesting line of thinking, Robert, because also, it also contains the seeds of the sort of kind of law and order side of this thing. You know, if, if I misbehave, in one of those like if i if i'm speeding in my car on the way home and i get caught i'll get fined whatever it is i know 50 pounds or something i'd pay in and carry on if i do something really bad in one of these uh dows and i get shut out of it that's a really serious punishment yeah like you know i so i i will behave myself because if if i get cut out that's really bad for me that's like your, real your, your future income will be cut off right from that down so there's kind of a there's a, there's a line of argument which says actually when these things are structured properly, people will behave better, more constructively in those virtual worlds than in the actual world. And I I I'm not sure if I. But isn't that the argument for Sesame Credit in China? And then you see what's uh, happening no, now: the protesters well, uh, against COVID are getting their credit scores slashed. That's a centralized system, though, and it's used by government to control people, right? We're talking here about a completely opt-in system where you voluntarily participate. If you want to drop out, you can. But well, here, here's 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 an interesting question for you, Dave. From this is is what what about the identity of the DAO? What about identities of AIs and these um, you know bots and agents will be transacting on the web? How how do we come to trust those um, you know digital constructs? It's so interesting talking to you guys. I love it. Um, well, look, you know, the the reputation would apply to a bot just the same as it would apply to a person. 
Like if you're if you're a bot that makes constructive suggestions about I don't know, it, you know let 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 let's say you know you talk about you you said earlier on about sports fans and wonder so like I belong to a sports fans group, and we have interesting conversations about about the World Cup and uh, you know who the Germany manager to pick tonight for the like. And and I can't, I I think you're really intent. You know, you make really sensible contributions to this, and I like your thoughts about this. And I, you know, I I like the way you think about the team construction. Whatever. Why would I care whether you're a person or not? You know, yeah. why would I care? It doesn't it's, really matter in the it's future. It's a purely reputational environment. Yeah, yeah. You know, now in Elon Musk's world, there's good reason to care whether you're a bot or not because. I don't want to sell you advertising. That's a waste of money, advertising to a bot, of course. So knowing you're a bot or not makes sense in some circumstances, but not in others. And if you if it is a reputational economy, then why would the reputation depend on whether you're a person or not, unless it was a personal reputation, if you see what I mean? So, and I, look, I, I'll tell you one very quick story, Robert, about this. I once, I, 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 I used to read a newsletter about digital money. And one day it showed up with a little thing at the bottom, which said, I'm really sorry. I just can't afford to do this for free anymore. You know, somebody needs to sponsor this or I can't do it. And I thought, I love this newsletter. So I'll sponsor it for the company. So I said, okay, we'll give you whatever it was, $1,000 on it. And I get back a message which says, that's great. But actually to save on F, can you just wire the money to our ISP to pay for our ISP bill? I said, sure, give me the details. So I send the money to the ISP. The newsletter shows up. With thanks to Consult Hyperion at the bottom, I'm happy. I'm still getting the newsletter. I like. I have no idea whether that newsletter was produced by a room full of students, some mm. genius guy, agents of a foreign power. I don't even know. It was useful to me. I paid for it. Did I care whether it was a person or not? I did not. I did not. Okay. So um, two bi- we want to get big picture now, totally sci-fi here, Dave. So um, brakes come off, okay? Um, 30 years out, 50 years out. What has happened to money and identity? Well, ho- hopefully identity will, 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 sh- will have shifted into a reputation. I mean, I hope this will happen. Whether it's driven by the banks or Disney or Walmart, I couldn't say, but I, I think it's coming. Money, I said in I said in one of my other books, beyond um, uh, before Babylon, beyond Bitcoin, I said that I thought the next evolution of money would be more community oriented. I, I kind of stand by that. And when you see the interesting things going on, because the new technology lowers the cost of going into the money business, you'd reasonably expect to see more experimentation and more different kinds of money. And I just have a feeling that the kinds of money that will get traction will be kinds of money that reflect the values of, of the communities that use them. You know, you could imagine, imagine there was an Islamic electronic currency that was based on gold, right? A non-interest bearing currency that was based on, that could have a billion users, nothing yeah. to do with like financial. Yeah, yeah. Because, yeah. Or suppose, suppose there was a, suppose there was a kind of money that was only, was only created using green eco. Like yeah. there could be billions of people that use that. Earth coin. So this or earth coin, yeah, exactly. So I said in my head. So so this idea that you you would have money that embodied some values Purpose, of the yeah. that used it. I I can sort of see the seeds of that being sown now. Yes. I know that you know, so the idea that everybody will be using dollars, um, I don't know. I don't know. 
Yeah, not, right. to, so, not to flog the NFT thing too much here, but the, that is actually what's happening. That's why NFTs have been durable during this meltdown. You don't have to convince as many people that they're valuable. It's a smaller community where with a general purpose cryptocurrency, you've got to convince everybody right. that's a unit of account or medium of exchange or a store of value. And candidly, they haven't really demonstrated that very well, even with Bitcoin. But with NFTs, you only have to convince a thousand people that that actually has some value and that they care to exchange. I, I don't stuff. think we need NFTs. I think we need PDTs, purpose-driven tokens. Yeah. Well, there you, go. you heard it first. Yeah. I think utility tokens is, is, yeah, no, I think that that's a big field of growth. <laughs> All right, Dave, thanks for joining us this week on The Futurist. Where, where, where can people follow your musings, your your writings and so it's forth? All at, it's all at www.dgwbirch.com. DGW Birch. And that's, of course, your Twitter handle as well. Yeah, yeah, and LinkedIn. Uh, that's it. So, uh, Rob, you want to take us out this week? Sure thing. Well, Dave, it's been a great pleasure to meet you, and I've enjoyed your book and your comments immensely. Thank you for joining us this week. That's it for another week of the world's number one fintech podcast and radio show, Breaking Banks. This episode was produced by our US-based production team, including producer Elizabeth Severins, audio engineer Kevin Hersham, with social media support from Carlo Navarra and Sylvie Johnson. If you like this episode, don't forget to tweet it out or post it on your favorite social media. Or leave us a five-star review on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Facebook, or wherever it is that you listen to our show. Those actions help other people find our podcast. And in return, that helps us build an audience that can be supported by sponsorship so we can continue to provide you with our award-winning content every week. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you on Breaking Banks next week.